Radio. WERU is the only regular outlet for native voices in the state of Maine, locally produced and locally relevant. It's important to your community and you're important to the survival of WERU. Please show your support by calling 1-800-643-6273. Thank you. And it's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host, Donna Loring, is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Webinaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, the topic of our show will be the MOU agreement that was signed on May 10th between the University of Maine and the Penobscot Nation. Uh, we'll be talking with uh, Dr. Darren Ranko, director of the Webinaki Center. Uh, at the University of Maine, Orono, and uh, Dr. Jane Anderson, uh, New York University, and Ambassador Molly and Dana of the Penobscot Nation. Uh, so I want to begin by just, I have Darren on so often, I, I hardly ever talk about his <laughs> who he is, you know. So uh, I'm just going to say that uh, Darren uh, has a joint appointment with the University of Maine, uh, with the uh, Department of Anthropology, the George J. Mitchell Center for Environmental and Watershed Research, uh, and also the Native American programs where he serves as chair and coordinator of the Native American research. And uh, his research is uh, focused on the ways in which indigenous communities in the United States resist environmental destruction by using indigenous diplomacies and critiques of liberalism, I can't talk this morning, uh, to protect cultural resources and how state knowledge systems rooted in colonial contexts continue to expose indigenous peoples to an inordinate uh, amount of environmental risk. Uh, Our other guest is uh, Ambassador Molly and Dana, and... uh, Again, I'll, I'll have to disclose that she's my great-niece. So, uh, Ambassador uh, Dana was appointed by the Penobscot Nation, uh, Chief Kirk Francis uh, and Council, in, se- in September of 2017. Uh, she, prior to that, she served as, the, uh, as a council member of the Penobscot Nation uh, and has done uh, lots of uh, advocacy work throughout Maine for the tribes, and particularly uh, focused uh, on the mascot issue. Uh, She's done so many other things since her appointment. Uh, It's very hard to keep up with uh, what she does. Nice to be young. (laughs) Uh, Our other guest is uh, Dr. Jane Anderson, who's an associate professor in anthropology and museum studies at New York University and co-director of the Local Context Platform. Jane's background is in intellectual property law, and for the last 15 years, 
She has worked with indigenous communities in Australia, Canada, and the United States to regain control and authority over photographs, sound recordings, language materials, and other documented cultural heritage held in museums, libraries, and archives. Uh, Dr. Jane Anderson, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Thank you so much, Donna. (laughs) Oh, are you from Australia? (laughs) I am, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, I I found it very interesting that uh, you got your law degree uh, uh, in Australia, and you've right. done you've done quite a bit of uh, work uh, in in Australia and uh, around the United States and various Aboriginal uh, groups. So, my question, I guess, to you is, what what made you uh, interested in in this this topic that we're going to be covering? That you know, museums and resources and that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's a great question, Donna, and thank you so much for the invitation to be on on your program. Um, I guess I became interested in these issues in Australia uh, when I was working for an Aboriginal organisation in Australia that had the largest collection of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultural material in the world, actually. And that organisation had recently become an Indigenous organisation. It had changed its governance frameworks, um, and it was really serving Indigenous people rather than um, researchers who it had historically served. And one of the big questions that came up in that uh, organisation was, who actually owns these collections? And the answer was, well, not the Indigenous people whose collections, you know, where they come from. And so that really began all the work that I now do, which is to uh, really kind of ask those questions about who owns those materials and to find solutions to that problem of making Indigenous culture into a form of property. Okay, and uh, I guess that... uh, So that answers the interest question. (laughs) (laughs) My next question is... uh, why why do you think that's important? Uh, I think it's important because if Indigenous communities don't hold control over their cultural heritage, then other people do, and they're able to use it in any ways that they want. Uh, and that really means that communities don't have control over their own representation in the world, nor do they have control over vital cultural heritage that is... Um, central to maintaining uh, cultural life of the communities. Uh, I think when I first encountered these problems, I didn't really understand the scale of them and I didn't really understand the scale of, well, what does it mean when the photographs of your grandparents are not owned by the family? They're owned by a researcher, they can be published in a book, they can be put anywhere, but the family doesn't have any control over that. And I saw... uh, you know, as I came to understand this problem in, in, in its complexity in a, in a different kind of way, there's a kind of profound inequity in terms of how copyright law functions to exclude the people who have been um, sharing their knowledge and sharing their lives and sharing their culture with enormous amounts of people over long periods of time. Uh, but to still not have any control over that uh, seems a, a, a great injustice. Uh, and so that's kind of why I work in these in these areas. 
So how did you end up uh, working with uh, Maine tribes? Uh, I think in about 2010, uh, Bonnie Newsom uh, invited me up to uh, uh, do an work- uh, intellectual property workshop at Penobscot. And from then, I kind of started working on some of the intellectual property questions that were coming up that seemed to not have any clear answers. And then in 2012, uh, I became a consultant on the administration of Native Americans' language project, the language grant. Um, and there was a section in that language grant called Protecting Our Voice. And that really uh, asked for uh, focused attention on the legal conditions of the ownership of the Penobscot language materials. And it asked to develop uh, specific memorandums of understanding to support the tribe developing policy around intellectual property uh, and to do kind of very kind of forensic legal research on the ownership of a particular collection of materials. And so since 2012, I've been doing that work with Penobscot. So then enters uh, (laughs) Dr. Darren Ranko. So, Darren, tell me about your first days in getting involved with this project. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Donna, and um, thanks, Jane, for joining us uh, via phone. The, um, I mean, I think, you know, sort of the beginning of the story of uh, this work does start in the, in the near past with this um, interest by Bonnie Newsom, who is our Tribal Historic Preservation Officer and um, our um, the director, the original director of our Cultural and, uh, uh, and Historic Preservation Department at the Penobscot Nation, and bringing Jane in. Um, but the question, you know, Bonnie started with, and, and I was uh, happily served as I returned to Maine as a faculty member at the University of Maine in 2009 um, as Bonnie's um, interest in funding uh, around uh, understanding first these uh, intellectual property issues of our archaeological resources. You know, who owns, you know, the materials is, you know, covered to a certain extent in federal law. But there's also... Um, questions of what the researchers just, you know, kind of unearth the, their their maps, the the way they engage in our communities. Um, how, how much control can you know can we exert over those cultural resources was a driving question, and that's you know Jane's first entry into this, and it's probably also where my entry into um, into this work, uh, helping uh, you know, eventually becoming part of a committee. Um, at the Penobscot Nation trying to help uh, Bonnie and help establish sort of our interest in protocols around protecting our intellectual property as it relates to archaeological resources first. And then uh, that expands, as she mentioned, through the language grant um, uh, a few years later. And James Francis uh, becomes the director of the Cultural and Historic Preservation Department where that grant is being administered. And the language resources, if we thought archaeological resources were tricky in terms of how we control them. The language resources, just because of the way that our language has been documented in the last 200 years, um, has made it even more tricky in terms of our control over those resources. And um, that that involved a, 
you know, starting in 2012, uh, an extension of a small committee of tribal folks trying to think about for our community and engaging at various times with, you know, different departments within our tribal government, tribal council, and other um, leadership trying to figure out really what role we can play in protecting our cultural resources. And so that sets the stage for this work at the University of Maine, where, you know, obviously, starting in 2010 with this archaeological uh, intellectual property issues, as well as in 2012 um, with the language resources issue, um, the the, uh, University of Maine was implicated and brought in as a partner in different ways at different times. And so there are these protocols that stretch back even before 2010, if we think about um, people in the Hudson Museum, Gretchen Faulkner being the director there, where protocols and, and best practices were being really at the interest of being good partners that the university was trying to be, um, and certain people especially really championing, trying to manage uh, Penobscot cultural heritage um, in a way that made it accessible and relevant to Penobscot people. And so that sort of momentum of different people working with the tribe in both official and unofficial capacities through the Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance and through other kind of contexts. That's where we lay the groundwork for um, what what went into and what becomes this memorandum of understanding. Ambassador Dana, you want to comment on what what this MOU means to uh, the Penobscot Nation? Sure. I guess in my work – you know, being a representative to different government agencies and different officials, the overall theme is that we need to be treated like a sovereign nation. And we talk about that a lot. And I think we it's something we really, really aspire to. But a lot of times we're trying to figure out how to really walk that walk. And anything like this MOU where we can assert ourselves as a sovereign body and claim rights over our our history, our identity, our representation, that makes my job a lot easier because we can point to these very tangible efforts uh, that are successful collaborations between different bodies with the Penobscot Nation leading the way. And I think it's a really uh, significant thing and a great thing. Yeah, I think, you know, given the the history of museums and universities and uh, how they've gone in and sort of researched tribes and uh, graveyards and relics and skeletal remains and, you know, just basically treated us like uh, some sort of uh, image under the microscope instead of people, I think that uh, this really is going to help set the stage for a little bit of uh, respect um, in how they approach us and how they treat us. And... uh, it's it, but it's amazing though how we have to go about doing this. You know, we have to like pull in a, a legal authority, an anthropologist, and you know, just in order to speak their own language to say, "Hey, you know, we're people." <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you know, this is. Um, I mean, Jane mentioned this. This is uh, work towards uh, justice, uh, doing something that is that is right, and and I think um, the element of doing the right thing. I think um, I always felt in the context of the university and the partners that we've had, I think that was never an issue. I think the issue that becomes is really the momentum and, you know, what, you know, that 
you know, library science or library practice, right, dictates that you would always just let things be borrowed in whatever way or museum practice would be like, oh, well, we own it. You know, no one can tell us what to do with it. You know, like that sense of ownership and control um, is is uh, embedded in so many of the policies and, and standard practices uh, of those worlds, like the museum world or the library world or, or even the research review world. And so I think the real challenges come when we say, no, we want to we're going to really rethink a little bit control and ownership. And as it reflects us as a people, as Penobscot people, the University of Maine is on Marsh Island. It's in traditional, you know, Penobscot territory, really. The island probably should still be ours. You know, those kinds of things are um, put a different starting point. And so uh, many of the, the professionals at the University of Maine had to you know, we had to work through language. We had to work through uh, a standard set of practices. I mean, luckily, as I mentioned before, there was already a set of relationships and, and ethical practices and interest in doing the right thing on the university side that sort of said, we're going to um, capture a lot of that, what, are, what already is happening, and create an agreement that creates pathways for future uh, more ethical and just uh, relationships as it relates to the management um, and protection and pr- you know proliferation of Penobscot cultural heritage. So, uh, Jane, is is you guys were working on this uh, thought about this MOU? How did you determine what areas to focus on? Well, we did a lot of talking about that with the perturbed committee, the Penobscot Tribal Resources and Rights Board. Um, did a lot of talking with Darren and with James about where really are the sites of concern, but also the sites where there are, you know, there's really goodwill and practices in place that we can kind of leverage through this MOU to actually become more formally set. Uh, and we knew that, uh, and in a way, I mean, I think the MOU is interesting in that it deals with kind of past practices uh, and present practices in order to kind of build a, uh, a solid pathway for the future. And of course, we have to deal when we begin, like you said at the very beginning of the show, with the conditions of research themselves. Um, this is kind of one of the key areas where the appropriation and uh, study of Indigenous culture happens. It happens through research. So from the outset, one of the key areas that we wanted to address was in the uh, institutional review boards and what that means to have a Penobscot Nation IRB and to get support to build that so that all research that is about Penobscot human subjects and happens on tribal territory can now go through a Penobscot process itself. So in a way, it's actually moving not only the control of the research process, but the decision-making about what kind of research is good for Penobscot back to Penobscot, uh, rather than that happening at a distance being made by decision-makers who are not Penobscot. So that was kind of one key area of the MOU that we knew from the outset had to be addressed. And then, of course, we needed to deal with the collections, the collections that exist at uh, the University of Maine, both in the museum 
uh, and also within the the library. These are sometimes those collections in the library are not seen as as significant as the kind of tangible material culture collections in uh, the museum. But as we know, that's often where language materials are held. They're held in the libraries. So we wanted to set up a, a, a special part of the MOU that uh, developed uh, processes for vetting that material from a Penobscot perspective and to correct uh, historical mistakes that are in the record because Penobscot have not been involved in that necessarily. Um, we wanted to build on the great work that Gretchen Faulkner had been doing in the museum uh, and just consolidate that within the MOU as well. Uh, we uh, engaged with the anthropology department uh, and uh, creating a capacity for the inventory of the collections that the anthropology department has. And then the final part of that, of course, was also like dealing with the press. Who gets to publish material about Penobscot? So those were the kind of the five kind of pivot points that formed the basis of the MOU. So, had you done this work before with other uh, tribes, this forming of MOUs with universities and museums? This is the first MOU that I've done with a tribe and a university. I've done a lot of work creating different kinds of policy and agreements uh, between different institutions and tribes, but this is the first MOU that we work together on. So, are, are a lot of those uh, areas the same, um, but are covered in different different ways? Yeah, they tend to be very similar. Uh, I think what was important about this MOU and why it's also so historic and why it's probably the first one that I've worked on is that there are very few MOUs that are this uh, specific uh, signed between tribes and universities. Uh, there's only a handful of MOUs between tribes and universities in the United States uh, to start with and they tend to be quite general what is specific or they're dealing with a very specific issue uh i think what's unique about this and what makes it uh form a, a really important precedent is uh tackling these different parts within a university system that have been part of uh the way in which communities have been locked out of collections from research from publications so it takes a whole of university approach uh, which was something that, you know, we discussed very early uh, in the MOU process from Penobscot side was that it needs to address everything. Uh, and while we don't address everything in here, we do address kind of key components. And that is really what makes it such a historic agreement. So, Darren, when you um, talked about these different areas and you, you brought the uh, the heads of the departments together is that how that worked was yeah you know and i you know very importantly the process uh started with this um board at Penobscot Nation the the Penobscot Tribal Rights and Resources Protection Board which we've shortened to perturb not you know cuz it <laughs> sounds funny and then also <laughs> it's probably slightly easier to say um you know, I think that there was so much work and so many um, really important meetings, you know, starting with, again, the the, the pieces in, in Bonnie's work around archaeology and then extending through language and other cultural resources that um, as we thought about the university, you know, so much of this work is, I mean, for, for 
for most tribal members, for most most of us, you know, sitting on the Penobscot side, it's it's a emotional work. It's it's tricky. There's a sense of, um, you know, we had to work through. I don't know if it's grief, those stages of grief, but it's the the sense that, you know, once you really scratch the surface, it's clearly not just that we don't control our own cultural resources and that um, we want to hold people accountable and then develop something better. But that's its own work. You know, I think, you know, it took some time for us to work through kind of those emotional kind of pieces of it, you know, which is that sense that we aren't in control. How do we uh, gain more control and 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 build upon something that's, you know, positive and, and respectful kind of moving forward? Uh, so I, I think that's a kind of a key element, too, that you know, it's not just the university, you know, the university's learning or, or trying to, we're trying to get them to relearn the language a little bit, but we're also trying to kind of figure out the words for um, the, the, the sense of lack of control and this sort of unjust history, and then develop a language for, um, you know, in a, in a respectful, culturally appropriate way, kind of seeking more control into the future. And I think that 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 can't be underestimated because it's it's almost like, oh, we just came up with this plan, um, and Jane, um, uh, I think knows this and, and wasn't also around for you know all these sort of meetings where we're like, what is our intellectual, pro-? you know, what is our culture that we want to, con-? you know, it's like it's not immediately clear, and then how do we work with it, something like a university and you know and 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 the MOU isn't isn't so much holding uh, accountable it's it is like we don't say it's it's exactly about holding someone accountable but it does right so there is this and and I think what makes it truly historic is that um the university on the university side they um the Penobscot participation through the board and through things like and, and Jane can talk about this as well through things like um having the tribe have access to putting um, traditional knowledge labels on particular collections, be they uh, in the library or in the museum, it actually increases the um, value and um, relative uh, information in the University of Maine's collection. So this isn't this is a this is a win win that um, once the university you know, once institutions like universities kind of get out of the way and think like aren't scared that the idea that indigenous people might have a little bit more control, the actual, um, the actual uh, information and interest that we have as indigenous people over these collections actually adds to it. So there's this mechanism, and this is mostly in, say, the museum and in special collections, where we use certain labels to put in attribution of the people who are really, whose knowledge it really is. That gives other researchers, native and non-native researchers, far more information about the documents, about the collections than they would have otherwise. So I think once we realized that that was something um, for the university to really gain, like I think one of the, that helped us develop some of the language around um, the sort of mutuality in the agreement. So, you know, the agreement is both a win-win, it holds accountable, it, it develops... It, it, it codifies current ethical practices and creates pathways for them moving into the future. 
Molly, and you have something. You look like you want to say something. <laughs> well, it, it makes me think a lot about, uh, we talk about the mascot issue using uh, Native American stereotypical imagery and sports and stuff like that. And I think this is empowering because we're saying not only are we still here, but we're going to put our very talented, intelligent people to work within these systems to gain control of our identity. And, you know, we're not just something locked up in a museum. And I think that we're probably the only race of people that has this strong of an, um, a problem with their identity being taken and misused and misappropriated and kind of, um, you know, mocked. And, you know, people want to hold up these mascots and things like that, saying that they're honoring us. Uh, but we're saying, no, you know, we're going to choose how we want to be seen and how we want to honor ourselves and our ancestors. And in the mascot work, a lot of times people say, well, if we get rid of these mascots, nobody will remember you. And I think that actions like this are a very strong statement. You know, we don't need to be remembered. We are. Yeah, and I also think it's uh, a microchasm uh, of what's happening in the in the larger society. You know, we're finally, we're, we're, are, we lack control. And this is sort of, this is a great example of us taking control. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, the control that's contemplated in this MOU, again, um, is, and, and this is just a cut to the chase, like, what what, what are we talking about when we're talking about control? It is, um, and it sets up mechanisms and processes in the agreement, and this is the level of detail that we have in it. it but it, you know, it, in terms of the museum, there's already a set of um, practices that, uh, items that are culturally sensitive or culturally important um, would not be circulated without our permission. Um, the museum, Hudson Museum already does that. She consults with people. But it allows, like, if she's missing something, it allows for a mechanism as well for the Penobscot Nation and hopefully other tribes that might be um, – that our goal is to develop these agreements with, with all the tribes in Maine um, to identify other – potential ones that she might be missing. I mean, she has a really command, good command of our, the collection at the Hudson Museum. But um, So she already has many of these practices which are about not letting certain things circulate that would be uh, sensitive or harmful to um, Penobscot people. In the, in, in the context of the special collections, it contemplates that um, as well, and there currently isn't a mechanism that isn't, quote-unquote, currently policy, but it, it allows for a process where the Penobscot Nation would identify culturally sensitive items uh, in the special collections that may not circulate beyond the the bounds of the, of the library. So people would most likely be able to visit it in the in the library, but if it was deemed culturally sensitive, it wouldn't circulate outside the walls of the library. It wouldn't be digitized for circulation, um, that sort of thing. Uh, so that's when we're talking about control. There's those elements, which is about limiting sort of access to the items in our culture that we find um, particularly important or sensitive that wouldn't be, um, if, if following our own cultural traditions, we wouldn't share with other people. And then the other part of the control is us um, using these labels to a- attribute more accurately what these collections are about, both in terms of authorship, but you think about like an anthropologist when interviewed for families, we could identify who are those families in that anthropological uh, collection. So th- those are the kinds of things that we're talking about when we're talking about control. 
Okay, so um, we've reached the point in the show where I'm gonna we're gonna take a little break here and let uh, Amy and Joel step in for uh, some uh, fundraising pitch. <laughs> so go ahead, Amy. All right, and, and we thanks Donna, and we will uh, just take a minute to do that. But we wanted to just step in and thank everyone for supporting Community Radio, and invite others to call four six nine sixty six hundred or 1-800-643-6273 and support this really important program, Wabanaki Windows. That's right. The Voice of Many Voices, this is where our mission statement is, and we like to have you show support for programs like this that you do not hear anywhere else. And it's a very important time uh, in our country's uh, life that everyone participates, and a good way to participate is by pledging to keep community radio strong and uh, thriving throughout the future supporting independent media we all say we want it this is where you get to uh put your money where your mouth is and and support it and i particularly wabanaki windows is an example of for me exactly why community radio exists and donna uh is not the kind of person who's going to brag or talk herself up so i'm glad (laughs) to have an opportunity to do this for her um just some of the topics that she's covered in the last few episodes of wabanaki windows uh the opioid epidemic in maine and native communities indigenous Wisdom and Spirituality, Sherry Mitchell's new book, Sacred Instructions, Decolonization, uh, the nationally renowned Native playwright William Yellowrobe Jr., uh, Native Prophecies, the opening of the Eastern Door, the Indian Child Welfare Act, I and mean, really important issues where uh, just getting them from scholars and representatives of the Penobscot Nation. Donna has connections throughout the tribe, and she brings on people who really know these issues, and we get a chance to really hear these discussions in a way that I think is is pretty unique. So please support that. Call in 1-800-643-6273 or 469-6600. Let Donna know you're out there listening. Show some support for community media. Help keep the radio station going. Make a pledge, whatever amount works for you. These are topics that uh, we need to be educated about. And this is what community radio is all about, bringing in people with these special uh, insights to these topics and bringing this information to you. And that's very important that you show your support for that. 1-800-643-6273. All right. Thank you. We don't want to take up uh, any more of Donna's important time here. So we're going to send it back over to Donna in the studio and wait for you to call 1-800-643-6273. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Thank you. Um, And again, you know, thank WERU for sponsoring the show. It's really, really uh, important. And we, we don't get much opportunities to uh, tell our side of things and our perspective. And uh, so we, we just really appreciate this opportunity. So moving ahead here, um, you're listening to WERU, Webinaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and we're talking about the MOU that was recently signed by the University of Maine and the Penobscot Indian Nation. Uh, my guests are uh, Dr. Darren Ranko, Dr. Jane Anderson, and Ambassador Molly and Dana. So let's move forward on this MOU, and let's just look at, at what we have for, uh, for categories in it. I mean, we, we sort of beat to death the background, I think. Sure. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, the, first, uh, the first section of this, uh, this MOU, we're talking about... Uh, the uh, the the voice, 
the integration of the Penobscot Nation's voice and perspectives into the university uh, research. And uh, so the, uh, I'll, ju I'll just read the first sentence to you. It's the, the purpose of this MOU is to clarify Penobscot Nation and University of Maine Orono expectations with regards to the following discrete areas. And, you know, you talk about the University Penobscot Nation Institutional Research Boards. Now, how did that start? I mean, who... I know Bonnie started that, right? The the I Institutional Research... Yeah, it's... Um, I mean, the, the tribe has been contemplating... Uh, and has had different um, rules uh, that that we've tried to implement uh, as back uh, as far back as the mid to late nineties. The the cultural committee, which is a part of uh, one of the committees of the tr tribal government, um, started, and this is under um, when Bonnie was the director of that uh, the cultural um, historic preservation department. Uh, started instituting certain kind of questions for potential researchers to the to the to the tribe, um, and that you know had its own history of sort of you know who do who does that have authority over and how does that work? And I think um, as when I came uh, back to Maine in two thousand nine, uh, this idea of controlling sort of the research because um, I mean the, the justice part of this is uh, and you'd mentioned this Donna you know we we are some of the most researched people in the world indigenous people um, and yet we are also and you've covered these statistics you know the, some of the poorest and some of the uh, with the least access to health care some of the least access you know so we you know the idea that this research could have or, or has benefited us is 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 a horrible irony um, in terms of, you know, that kind of benefit. So for us, the, you know, the, the history of research in, on our lands and with our people um, controlling that and actually having it benefit us has really been an ongoing struggle uh, and really one of these sort of ongoing colonial um, elements that we've we've been trying to gain control over. So, yeah, I think that the idea would be in addition to having a committee or even now this um, perturb board, um, having some sense of control or review of anyone coming to our tribal lands and communities is that uh, a lot of research um, is done, you know, through the IRBs of um, universities. So this is a legal requirement for all researchers engaging with human subjects. Um, there are certain rules and uh, they have to go through a process. They have to be trained. They have to go through a process of research review. And any um, university ha has one of these boards. So for us, the context was, and very early on in, uh, when I came back, um, was trying to create a discussion where we wouldn't just kind of have some influence over someone visiting our community and going to the cultural department, but we would have influence beyond our borders, right, to researchers who are proposing research, say, through the university that would impact tribal uh, Penobscot people or resources uh, in that way. So for us, it's a very um, critical um, idea that we would work with the university to develop uh, an, an, a tribally controlled institutional um, research uh, review board and that that would be and, and it, once it gets approved and it hasn't been approved yet but once it gets approved that we would um, 
any university, uh, for any researcher that would be coming to our lands or, or doing research on our people would say something like, oh, no, go to the Penobscot Nation IRB. They're the ones that actually control it because all IRBs have this thing called federal-wide assurance, which which means that we're supposed to kind of work together and respect each other's decisions because we're all applying basically the same set of protocols and rules. Um, so what's contemplated in the MOU is a furthering of, you know, and this has already started, the University of Maine IRB people helping our tribe kind of develop and institute our own tribal IRB. And once it's established, being probably, will you know, the University of Maine will be the first entity to say, this has Penobscot in the research um, uh, permission. We're going to just send you to the Penobscot IRB and whatever they decide in terms of their your research, that's what we're going to decide. So that that is contemplated in the MOU uh, as uh, a future process. And one of the steps in that is having a, a non-voting um, Penobscot representative on the IRB uh, for a period of at least two years. Uh, and so that's the the idea that whoever that is would be learning how the IRB works, seeing what kinds of issues are brought up in it, and sort of trying to think through how that would be implemented on the tribal side. Okay. <laughs> does that explain it? <laughs> yeah, 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 it does. Uh, so I know, it's, it's a, like it's the a, detail of a legal yeah, agreement you know, is such like, exciting it's, radio. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> so it's a it's a collaborative process, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. That you have here. You, yeah. uh, but one one of that sounds familiar that you said a non voting seat. I'm familiar with that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. That's right. Yeah. So uh, let's move on to the uh, the Hudson Museum, the standard practice for the Hudson Museum. Uh, so uh, who wants to take that? You, Darren, or Jane? I've heard Darren. Jane, yeah, you want to say something yeah, about that? Yeah, have Jane. Jane. Jane did a lot of back and forth with, with Gretchen on this, so I'd love to hear her. Um, sure. I mean, I, I think we've already said as well that the Hudson Museum was has always has been doing a lot of this uh, work around best practices and recognizing the protocols that exist for uh sharing and circulating Penobscot heritage that's at the Hudson Museum. And our in, uh, the kind of motivation here was really to kind of get some of that on in a kind of more formal way in, on paper, uh, as well as to kind of find a way for uh, certain kind of informal practices to be uh, not only formalised but uh, extended uh, over the course of this MOU, which is something that we really wanted to focus on here in the in the standard practice for the Hudson Museum, uh, and that meant, you know. Uh, creating a new addition for the collections management policy that addresses some of the complications in the management of, of Penobscot collections, uh, as well as kind of formalising those informal designations for categories of Penobscot uh, tangible collections. And I guess the other part was creating a permanent Wabanaki seat on the Hudson Museum's board of directors. Uh, that was also something that we incorporated into the into that appendix. Is that a voting seat? Yes, it is. It's a full, it's a full seat of the for the board of directors, and um, that's um, Jennifer Neptune is ah, that person. Good. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a really um, 
And, and I can attest because I'm on the advisory board of cooperating cu- curators for the for the for the Hudson Museum, and there are already policy changes coming. We've already agreed to a number of policy changes because of the MOU. So Gretchen's work is uh, never done, and it's really just instituting, you know, the spirit and and um, pr- process of the MOU into the formal operation of the museum as well. So she's using this opportunity to, again, you know, uh, MOUs are, are oftentimes for the the next person in that job, you know, like the, the relationships between so many of these people and the Penobscot Nation are very good. But, you know, Gretchen isn't one to be to sort of set on her laurels and just be like, oh, I figured this out. She wants to make sure this is done better uh, and into the next generation and so forth. So practically, how would that work? So you have an object uh, and you find – would would we would Penobscot Nation be loaning something to them or vice versa or if they find something if they find an object uh, would they be consulting us with that? So um, mostly what's what's thought through and in, in, uh, in the MOU is current collection. Okay. Uh, so a current object would be um, uh, if something is culturally sensitive or culturally important. Um, she's already instituting a, a sort of system that even – and she's mostly a single-person operation. She – a lot, number of students are, work with her. But anyone who would have access to the collection would see these designations and she's contemplating this being like green, yellow, and red. So green is something that is, you know, loanable. It's it's open sort of access. The tribe has said, you know, that's okay. You know, most most baskets are in this category. Uh, or many baskets are in this category. Um, but then yellow would be something uh, of attribution to a particular uh, person or, or a community member that there's this particular interest in. And then, and then red would be something that is uh, important culturally uh, for cultural heritage or spiritual purposes that would never be kind of considered to really even be on display, uh, let alone loan to another institution. Um, and then the the other side of the current collection is these TK labels, wherein again attribution would be clarified, um, in particular, but also the use of it from a tribal perspective. The 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 board working within the context of the larger Penobscot Nation would um, do a, a much fuller and more accurate attribution of who made the object, whose representatives, and there are even some photographs as well in the Hudson. You know, those kinds of things would be more accurately um, portrayed. Mm-hmm. Okay, so another uh, standard practice section uh, is with the Folger Library. So tell yeah, me how I'll, that works. I'll, yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll talk on that one. I think this is a, a very interesting part of the appendix, partly because it really brings into play some of the new digital tools that have been developed to assist in the decolonization of collections within institutions. And those uh, two digital tools are the TK labels, the traditional knowledge labels that uh, Darren mentioned, and a content management system called Mukutu. And that content management system really serves, it's the only content management system that's been developed that was developed for Indigenous communities. And in that sense, it was developed with protocols 
for access and use as the kind of core foundation of that uh, system. And what that means really is that uh, uh, the public is not the default user of this content management system. It's not about creating a system so everything can be accessed by everybody at, ev at any time. It's actually very particular and concerned with crafting different forms of access that are dependent upon each community's standpoint. And so that allows for different kinds of variegated access. So certainly if there's culturally sensitive material, that can be looked after within this content management system without it being shared. And that's very unusual for uh, libraries to have to start contemplating and dealing with material that perhaps should not be circulating. Uh, so one of the parts of this uh, standard practice for the Fogler Library was integrating these two systems that Penobscot are already using. Penobscot have their own uh, uh, Mukatu uh, instance, which allows uh, for filtering of material and for Penobscot community members to comment on cultural heritage items and materials that are available on that system, uh, as well as kind of implementing the traditional knowledge labels. And Penobscot have their own traditional knowledge labels that have been developed by the perturbed board and gone through council that set up what these different kinds of protocols of access and circulation should be into the future. So the TK labels add, tend to add missing information, information that was not necessarily uh, collected at the time the material came into the collection, uh, but it also adds important uh, concerns that Penobscot might have about what the future circulation of that material should be. Uh, that could be around sensitive material, it could be around uh, material that should only be heard at different times of the year, uh, it could be around uh, that this material is really chosen by Penobscot as uh, educational material about Penobscot. And it just adds a different level of nuance in terms of how Penobscot cultural material is cared for uh, into the future. Yeah, that's a great, uh, that's a great program. Um, and uh, we have to thank James Francis for all of the work. He's done some tremendous work on that, on that part of the Absolutely. program, yes. So thank you, James. I know you're listening. <laughs> That's right. Get better, man. Yeah. <laughs> He'd be here except for he had a little accident and broke his arm. A little painful. Um, okay, so and the next one, um, okay, we talked about the library. Oh, yeah. So then there's always the press. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's talk about the University of Maine press. we we got about five minutes here. And, mm -hmm. Well, the the press is the shortest um, portion, <laughs> okay. uh, thankfully. So you can stretch um, that out a little bit. No, we're not going <laughs> to stretch it out. Um, I mean, again, this is um, Michael Alpert, who runs the University of Maine Press, is a, is a great um, partner to uh, the work uh, that's ongoing, including um, a, a future publication of the Penobscot Language Dictionary. And because some of this work actually started with Jane uh, trying to make sure our language uh, heritage is protected and, and um, we have uh, some control over it. Um, they were already kind of, you know, instituting practices which would give us say, recognize the Penobscot Nation as a copyright holder over over our own cultural heritage. So it really just firms up those those pieces and then sets in a process like the other like the other sections of the agreement to continue to work together 
um, and co- consult with and, and really seek approval by Penobscot Nation on any uh, publications, uh, you know, about us and, and that sort of thing. So it, it's really, again, about this sort of past and current uh, set of issues. Um, and, and we're super excited. I don't think we have a release date exactly because I don't think all the work has been done on the Penobscot Language Dictionary. But um, if, if folks have seen the Passamaquoddy Malice Dictionary that the University of Maine Press uh, published, it, it'll be in that spirit and will have a really, I think, important and profound impact on our um, the furthering um, reclamation of our language and, and teaching of it within our community. Okay. Here's a, here's a piece that you don't have to stretch, uh, uh, Darren. Uh, it has to do with the, the practice for the Department of Anthropology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. It's it's a stretch only to the extent that this is about our archaeological resources, and I'm not an archaeologist. This is why Bonnie Newsom, who is a Penobscot archaeologist, it would be great to have her here. Um, one thing to know about is that most anthropology departments that have a history of archaeological collection, and I think land-grant universities are uh, kind of um, reflective of this, is that uh, the archaeology departments collect a lot of um, – things that they've dug up over the years. And oftentimes these collections are a little bit unorganized and a little bit messy, and we're definitely no different in the anthropology department at the University of Maine. Um, and really for this section, it just uh, you know it really contemplates the idea that um, there will be better cataloging and more communication with the Penobscot Nation around what is in these collections and really identify a process where culturally – uh, important and culturally sensitive materials would be, uh, you know, protected in the same ways that it, they would be in terms of the museum or the library, but also, you know, really just sort of sets up mutual goals around identifying and working on this collection to, uh, commu- you know, to make it sure it's a, of use to Penobscot Nation people. Uh, and, you know, the fact that we now have our main archaeologist is a Penobscot archaeologist, I think we're in good hands. I think there's a lot of work to be done. And so we wanted to be both um, respectful that there isn't like a full-time or really any collections manager employed by the anthropology department anymore, that we wanted to make sure that there was ongoing work uh, to catalog and communicate this collection and make sure it's working uh, for the Penobscot Nation, but also um, realizing that uh, there's there's a great amount of work that goes into this, and um, but it, th- this is again really a step forward for the university. There, there are these collections that have been sitting in basements um, for years and years that are now going to actually be cataloged in a way that speaks to us as uh, in the categories we're identifying as important cultural heritage items as the Penobscot Nation, not some archaeologist who's not chatting with us, just cataloging it and, and writing it down and for them. So it's, in some ways, the fact that a lot of it is uncatalogued and will be cataloged in a way that's more appropriate to us as the Penobscot Nation means that there won't be double work done. Uh, Molly, do you have any last words? Yeah, I just want to really acknowledge Darren uh, and James Francis and Bonnie Newsom and uh, the Penobscot tribal citizens that have really uh, had a strong arm in making this happen and uh, maintaining these relationships because you know if you're not at the table you're on the menu right <laughs> <laughs> hmm, yeah i think so uh, and and jane uh thank you so much for 
being on the show and for all the work you've done on this project as well. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, some of the couple donors that have called in during the show. Uh, David from Belfast, uh, who's uh, a very supportive member. Thank you very much. And uh, Star in Trenton, we thank you as well. Uh, and we're very grateful for any any support that uh, that you give us. So um, thanks, Star. <laughs> uh, Jane, I think we might have a minute. If you one minute, do you have any? Oh no, I guess you don't. Sorry. Uh, okay, thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Lauren. You've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. I want to th- thank my guest, Darren Ranko, Wabanaki Center, UMO, Doctor. Jane Anderson from the New York University, Ambassador Molly and Dana of the Penobscot Nation, and uh, thank uh, our engineer, Amy Brown. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD Dreamwalk. And please join us again next month for another Webinecki Windows. <laughs>